Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask people to tell me the four things from their life they cherish so much that they would like to preserve them in a time capsule, and the one thing in their life they find embarrassing or annoying or even unjust, and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actress, comedian, and impressionist Jan Ravens. Famous for the myriad voices she has contributed to Spitting Image and the long-running BBC Radio 4 comedy, Dead Ringers. But that hardly covers Jan's extraordinary career. She was the first female president of the Cambridge Footlights. She became a radio comedy producer, a very male world at that time, and then started performing as one of the cast of Jasper Carrot's massive 1980s comedy series, Carrot's Lib as a regular voice on Spitting Image and as a radio presenter for Capital Radio in brunch with her then-husband, Steve Brown, and DJs Paul Burnett and Roger Scott and the comedy writers and performers Jeremy Pascal and Angus Deaton. She has done the voiceover for a multitude of adverts. She's guested on Just a Minute, Sorry I Haven't a Clue, QI, Whose Line Is It Anyway and Have I Got News For You?, 
and she won Celebrity Mastermind. She also partnered Anton Dubeck in the 2006 series of Strictly Come Dancing. And she's worked at the RSC. But luckily, she was able to find time to talk to me about the five things she put in a time capsule. And here they are, as chosen by the lovely Jan Ravens. You know, your first job, you have to be sort of like, I don't know if you remember, I've sort of worked hard to make everybody forget, but I did this thing called Just Amazing yeah. with Barry Sheen and Kenny Lynch, which was like, yeah. you know, peak time Saturday night shit. <laughs> and uh, and spent years kind of trying to live it down, you know. And, but it's always those things, you sort of choose comedy. Yeah. I went into comedy because I went to the Edinburgh Festival with three very serious plays yeah. and doing the late night review for the fun of it. Yeah. And there I am, yeah. comedy. yeah. I know, but I think it's in you as well. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, both of us do the other stuff. But if comedy's in you, you, you sort of can't keep it out. <laughs> no, I know. I have that problem when I do serious plays. But I think it's important in serious plays to find the humour in it. Yeah. Yeah, although yeah. not always. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've seen me act then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but this too, too solid flesh would melt, eh? Could do it melting a bit of this. <laughs> I know. Great. Okay. Right. Well, Jan, welcome to my time capsule. So, what's your first item? My first item is um, well, I can. I, my this is my first item. It's a oh. it's a pretty cup and saucer. And um, my pretty cup and saucer uh, that I'm putting in the time capsule belonged to my nanny. And I used to go round to my nanny's house on Saturday morning to get my one and threepence pocket money. And, uh, yeah. and she would make me um, a cup of coffee, which in those days was like powdered Nescafe yeah. um, with boiled milk on it. <laughs> I mean, just disgusting. But it came in this beautiful cup. And I think it was the first time that I sort of became aware of, like, domestic things being lovely. Because I used to really look forward to this, this cup of coffee in this beautiful... It's a, it's a thin china cup mm. uh, and it's, it's pale pink with pale green flowers and very, very delicate china. I mean, you know how now people go into, you know, coffee shops and, so, and they come out with these bloody buckets of coffee, these great <laughs> sort of swilling buckets of sort of milky froth. And, and I kind of think, oh, you know, I just sort of love the kind of the, the diminutive quality of this coffee and the sort of delicacy of the cup. And like I say, it was the first time that I'd ever been aware of domestic things being beautiful because, I mean, our house was like... Uh, well, it was sort of utilitarian, I guess. I mean, a lot of things like, you know, the crockery was from the Green Shield Stamps catalogue yeah. and um, the fabrics and the, the furnishings. I remember there was a lot of Draylon. <laughs> that sort of Draylon that goes, goes <laughs> when, you, when you sort of rub it, you know, the wrong way. My mother kept the covers on the sofa for a long time when she bought what, it. What, the polythene covers? Yeah. Oh, that's sweaty. Mm. And, and I also remember actually at home we had... It was the 70s or the 60s and 70s. So everything was like psychedelic. There were lots of psychedelic patterns and lots of orange and brown and mustard, all the sort of most horrible colours <laughs> um, together in these sort of swirly patterns. And I remember we had these curtains and my mum would make the curtains and uh, she would go and get the fabric from Birkenhead Market. 
And this fabric that she bought was actually, it was fiberglass. Oh, that's great, that love, you know, it'll do you, do you great, that love, you know, oh, it'll be sound, you know, there you go, you got your, got this fiberglass, you know, very hard wear. And it was like, again, it was like sort of, had this sort of horrible feel, this sort of feel, fiberglass curtains and drail on sofas. So, so my nan's house, where there were these lovely, um, Adderley, Adderley fine bone china cups. It sort of opened my eyes to how your home or things in your home could be beautiful. Yeah. And then I, we started going to my godmother's cottage for our holidays. And she had some really lovely like Sanderson fabrics in this little cottage in Wales where we had to go every bloody year, incidentally. <laughs> um, anyway, because I'm, I'm actually a Taurus. This is very, you know, uh, hello. Don't say she's talking about star signs, but um, yeah, I'm a Taurus and, you know, Taurians apparently are renowned for sort of like being home loving and loving sort of fabrics and, you know, being tactile. I mean, I I always sort of say, you know, yes, I'm a Taurian, earthy, passionate and prone to run to fat. (laughs) So I blame this kind of um, this sort of early love of kind of, you know, I, I sort of had my eyes open to. The beauty, it's like a William Morris thing, I suppose. You know, don't have anything in your house that isn't beautiful or useful. And uh, So is it sort of a reaction to that 60s and 70s thing where everything was new and you got rid of everything old? So, in fact, all those older things are sort of delicate, more subtle in a way, aren't they? Well, also, I think certainly at that point... it wasn't like my parents had the sort of the new things that were like cutting-edge design. They were just a bit shit, actually. Um, and so, so I think, yes, there was the sort of, um, it was a love of old things. And then of course, when I went to Cambridge and I'd go back to sort of friends' houses and I remember a lot of people having these houses that had this kind of easy comfort. I guess it was a sort of early, because this was like the mid to late seventies. This is, it was sort of like shabby chic, which became a thing kind of later on, but it was that thing of, of things being old, but kind of rather lovely yes. and not being sort of new and draylon and fiberglass. They were kind of, um, you know, these beautiful old chintzes and uh, lovely old wooden carved tables and things like that, but that, which, which weren't sort of like bright and shiny and new, but they were beautiful. Mm. It's a sort of ease that that the gentry have, isn't it? Yes, all those all those houses you go to and think, "Wow, this is a whole a whole new world." How did you get to that world, Jan? That's extraordinary. I mean, clearly through hard work and working hard at school, but it's a big jump, isn't it, Birkenhead? It was my art teacher, really. My art teacher um, directed the school plays. And she was this woman called Mary Metcalf, and she was sort of like she had these sort of um, very slim, sort of um, Bambiish legs with very sort of fine ankles and a well-turned calf. And <laughs> she was one of those teachers. I don't know if you had them in your school. She would all make all her own dresses, but she'd sort of have one pattern, but make this one pattern in all different fabrics. And it was very fitted. She had very good breasts, very slim waist, and so she had this flowing dress going out to just um just on the knee and she was very she was a beautiful auburn hair and freckly and very toothy and um she was quite sexy I suppose for thinking back on it but she would direct the school plays and I really wanted to be an actress you know from being quite young 
because uh, I was from the same uh, town, small town as Glenda Jackson. And so I thought, oh, if Glenda can do it, I can get out. You know, I can go. I can go to the RSC. I can be in a Hollywood movie. So I really wanted to be Glenda Jackson, um, you know, and the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England, too, and all that business. <laughs> and... Uh, and so anyway, I, I couldn't go to drama school because you couldn't get a grant to go to drama school, but you could get a grant to go to teach a training college. And my art teacher who did the school plays, she'd been to Homerton in Cambridge, which was the teacher training college. Oh, you must go to Homerton, you know, punting on the backs and all that and marvellous. And I thought, well, that's a good alternative. You know, I can do drama at Cambridge. And then I, and because um, my dad and I had always watched, you know, things like Monty Python and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and stuff on the telly. Um, I, ha- I had an inkling of the whole kind of footlights thing. And so I thought, yeah, Cambridge would be a good place to go. And, and I went down for an interview, you know, and it was so beautiful. Mm. And my God, you know, teaching practice, God, that's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Bloody hell. <laughs> Uh, I've got such admiration for teachers mm. because it, it's the hardest job in the world. I mean, you know, if you're uh, in a play, oh, okay, you've got to go on stage, but there's no tougher audience than a class full of kids because, you know, an audience aren't going to go, hey, nice. you know, they're not going to start. Well, hopefully they're not going to start heckling <laughs> you. But yeah, class full of kids is a really tough audience. Mm. So I was quite, I was a bit of a fish out of water. I mean, I did feel kind of... Um, I mean, certainly when I started doing plays, because, you know, you, you, you do the plays with all the people from all the university colleges. Homerton was full of, like, grammar school girls like me, or actually much more um, assiduous than me, very, very studious. And they would sort of, like, you know, take very careful notes at every lecture and then regurgitate them. It was a kind of continuation of the grammar school education in lots of ways. Mm. But it did actually open my eyes politically being at Homerton because we... we because of studying education and talking about the psychology of education and the sociology of education and equality of educational opportunity and all that kind of thing. I mean, it really opened my eyes a lot because although we'd been, you know, we didn't have any money when I was a kid, my family, I mean, my mother in particular was very sort of, um, well, they've all got satellite dishes. They all smoke. You know, she was very sort of she was very sort of unforgiving of people who kind of couldn't get on with it because she was such a sort of get her on with it. So do you think that uh, that your chameleon nature, which you're so <laughs> famous for, really, did you develop that before you went there? Or was it a, a result of, you know, when you go to these places, you really think you must turn up with a chip on your shoulder, don't you? Because you think these posh people are not going to want me in their gang. Well, looking back on it, I mean, it's, it's it sort of goes two ways, really, because while I felt very... Um, sort of out of place and insecure and imposter syndrome and all that. I also look back at what I did and I was infused with this kind of amazing confidence. I mean, in my first year, I think I wrote and directed a a musical um, based on around Beatles songs called Every Person, which was like the Everyman story, only it was called Every Person and it was about a woman sort of trying to find herself in, you know, the modern world kind of thing. And it was all done with the characters from Everyman, the medieval um, mystery play, and written around Beatles songs. And I sort of think, and it was like a sort of, you know, (laughs) prototype Mamma Mia. (laughs) (laughs) I think, how did I have the nerve to do that? And then I directed, you know, the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, and I was bossing all these people, and I choreographed it. You ended up as president of the Footlights, didn't you? 
I did, yeah, yeah. Oh. I was the first woman president, but but I think that was just a sort of a moment, really. I think um, uh, our mutual friend Martin Bergman, who was uh, president a couple of years before me, and then Robert Bathurst was president the year before me, and I think Martin sort of decided this would be a great sort of um, thing to do to have a, a woman. And, and when I when I became the, the president, I thought, why have they never had a woman to do this before? Because basically, it's a load of slog. Yeah. You know, you've got to book the tour, you've got to, you know maintain the club room you know it's like why did a woman never do this before it's a pain in the bum yeah but anyway um yeah but then so, that theme carries on through your career I, you were also the first female comedy producer at, at radio 4 weren't you yes yes <laughs> yeah and that was another story of like you know what the hell am i doing here it was um uh, yes, in a, in a corridor full of men. I mean, well, there were women as well, but the women were all secretaries. Mm. And the women had to sort of, you know, bring cups of tea. And, uh, and apparently there was, there was the head of the light entertainment department at that time, which always makes me laugh because, you know, and this is the heavy entertainment department, you know. <laughs> we have the light ent- and here we have the heavy entertainment, we do the drama. Um, <laughs> but this guy was head of the light and he was called Bobby J. Mm. And Bobby J was like, hello. And he had a sort of moustache. <laughs> and, uh, and apparently he gathered the male producers when I was due to arrive and said, now, look, we might have to sort of, you know, bear in mind, you know, we've got a woman coming in to be a producer, you know, bear in mind, might be certain times of the month where we have to tread a bit carefully, you know, and all that. <laughs> and because um, Jimmy Mulville and Jeffrey Perkins and Jamie Ricks were all uh, producers there at the time. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was it was a it was an amazing time, actually. I mean, it was a real baptism of fire because you had to sort of go around trailing other producers. So watching what they were doing. And then suddenly you got thrown in at the deep end. And because of the way programmes were scheduled, so there was Week Ending, which was like the topical satirical show of the time. So there was that. And then there was there were sort of all the panel games and things like that. And I had to do this panel game called The Law Game, which was devised and written by a man called Brad Ashton, who used to run the Brad Ashton School of Comedy. And he had the worst toupee you've ever seen in all the world. It was transfixingly bad. Worse than Frankie Howard's? Oh, much worse than Frankie Howard's. It had a little sort of straight fringe at the front and this very sort of like um, arresting shade of auburn. And he wrote this thing where there would be um, a bunch of actors, sort of like actors from the radio rep, and they'd have to act out a scene. And then a panel of celebrities would have to guess whether the the scene was legal or illegal or whether they were guilty or not guilty. Sounds like a winner. Yeah, it was a real winner. It was absolutely... And then I did a pilot of um, a, a sort of sketch show called 3 Plus 1 where I sort of reversed the formula of there being three men and one woman in a sketch show and we had three women and one man. Mm. And in the pilot, we had um, Alison Steadman, Denise Coffey and Emma Thompson. And then <laughs> Nicholas Le Prevost was the, was the straight man. Uh. And then uh, Emma, Emma was too busy to do the series. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, I mean, it nearly got taken off the air, 3 plus 1, for using the word orgasm in a sketch. Oh, look, I'm shocked. I'm stunned. Different times, Mike. Different Even today, times. I'm, I'm I'm taken aback by the use of that word. I I'm going to have to edit that out, Jan. You know, I know. That. I'm yeah, so sorry. I do. Yes, I'm sorry about that. But I can see what you mean about that ridiculous confidence that you have at that age. I mean, it is yeah. sort of ridiculous, isn't it? Because you don't really know what you're doing, and then you just go, "Yep, I'll do it." Yeah, and I think it's the sort of the thrill of new things, the thrill of of opportunity. 
And I guess you either think, well, I am absolutely fucking terrified. Uh, I'm not doing it. Or you think, I'm terrified, I'm going to do it. Mm. And I thought, I'm terrified and I'm going to do it. And I can remember, you know, being on the phone to my mum and dad going, oh, my God, I'm going to do it. And also when I... uh, when I directed the Footlights Review, which was sort of how I got the job as a producer, the Footlights Review that won the first Perrier Award and it had, you know, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson in it, so Tony Slattery. Mm. So it naturally did very well. Um, uh, but directing that, you know, was pretty sort of nerve-wracking as well. Mm. Well, it's impressive though. Yeah. All right, Jan, we're going to take, I don't know how we came to this, but we're going to go no. back and we're going to take that lovely cup and saucer. The cup and saucer. Beautiful fine bone china. Yeah. And uh, we're going to put that carefully into the time capsule yeah. to remind you of that time and that yeah. that journey that you made in those, in your younger days. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So what's your second item? My second item is a microphone because... The voice has been such a kind of huge part of my life and and also kind of following on from what we've just been talking about, really. I guess when I started doing voiceovers, you know, when I when in the early days of doing voiceovers, you know, when you have your headphones on and you're talking into the mic and you suddenly become aware of your own voice. It's like people say, oh, I hate hearing myself, uh, you know, hearing myself back on an answering machine or something. But when you're, um, you know, in a studio and you hear your your own voice and while I, you know, I mean, I'm from the Wirral, from Merseyside. So so my voice, you know, didn't have a voice like that, you know, wasn't kind of, you know, like really scouts or <laughs> nothing like that. But uh, I did have a voice that was kind of probably more like that, you know, that was um, with, with those particular vowel sounds. And so I'd hear myself saying, and I still do actually, I still hear those those sounds from time to time. Like um, instead of saying go, you say go. Mm. And um, instead of saying singing, you say singing and those sorts of things. And so I'd hear myself, you know, in the in the headphones and hear these. And gradually over the years, and I think through being at Cambridge and then moving to London uh, as well, but hearing your own voice back at you kind of thing. And, and I, I remember there was this advert um, where, with Sherry Lungi doing the voice of a Dulux soft sheen. And she would talk about Dulux soft sheen, you know, and these beautiful colours and this beautiful dark brown voice. And so I sort of modelled myself, you know, my voiceover voice on Sherry Lungi. And, uh, <laughs> and actually I did a voiceover with her the other week. And <laughs> I was so ill when, when we did these voiceovers. Uh, I, and I hardly had any voice. But luckily, it was one of those things where you could, you know, because it was the Daily Mail. You know, in, in the Daily Mail this Saturday, Michael Mosley tells us his recipes to solve diabetes and, you know, take you back to it. Um, and it was like, so it goes up, but I didn't really have any voice. I mean, I was, I was, I was almost, I was almost Claire Rayner, you know, I was almost kind of. You know. Yes. Claire Rayner was one of the first impressions I did when uh, I did a, I did this review called Har Bloody Har mm-hmm. um, with my my then husband Steve and um, Nick Wilton, and I I did this impression I did it on Carrots Lib actually as well on the telly of Claire Rayner going Will you do Will you do that for me, love? Will you ring me up and tell me when you've done it, love? Will you do that? And uh, you do it very very fast, very very and always sort of run out of breath before she got to the end. Of the sentence. <laughs> and anyway, Claire Rayner came to see this. We did this review at the. Um, the gate in, at the Latchmere in Battersea. And Claire Rayner came to see it and she loved it. She, you know, she thought it was a real laugh. 
And anyway, it turned out that why she, the reason that she talked in this way, running out of breath, was because she actually had emphysema. <laughs> but I used to say, you know, Claire Rayner, you know, she took it in very good heart. Crap lungs, but very good heart. <laughs> but she was one of the first. She, I, I did her on Carrot's Lib and then... Um, that was one of the first things I was asked to do on Spitting Image. Mm. But the microphone, I mean, I just think the voice is such an amazing... It, it, it can be so empowering and so disempowering. And um, and the power of the recorded voice, I mean, spoken and singing, is such a, such a huge thing. There's this fabulous song called um, Mon Coeur S'ouvre à ta voix. It's from an opera... I think it's Samson and Delilah, but it's this, it's, it's the, you know, my, my, my heart opens at your voice. Mm. And I think the, the, the power of the voice is such a powerful thing. It's like when you're, I mean, I can remember when I had young kids and I lost my voice. And when you can't tell your kid, you can't say, stop doing that, you know, Alfie, don't do that to Lenny. You, when you can't speak to your kids or shout at your kids, probably, it's so disempowering. I, you know, I always wonder why, politicians who have crap voices, for example, don't sort of work a bit more at them. Yeah. Because if politicians had a, had a, had a voice, like Emily Thornberry's voice, you know, mm. if everybody spoke like Emily Thornberry, you know, they might take more notice of them. Yes. But, uh, but, you know, when you speak like Pretty Patel, you know, where you're saying hang in and, you know, relaxing and, uh, you know, you are not, you know, sounding any of your words ending in gur. And, um, you know, that's a smirking at the same time. You know, people just sort of, I just think they should take much more notice of, of how they sound. Yeah. Because it's such an important part of how you come over. But you're known amongst all your friends as somebody who you will start impersonating the person you're talking well, to. <laughs> well, it's not, that's not strictly true, Mike, actually, because I'm really not one of these people who does impressions that does them all the time. No. I think you're probably specifically thinking of one of our friends in common. Yes. Which is a, a lovely, lovely Helen Atkinson Wood. Thank you very much indeed. Um, <laughs> well, I know, but I have seen you do me at me. Really? Yeah, just to sort of take the mickey out of my... <laughs> to point up the absurdity of what I'm saying. Oh, right, Okay. Have you always had that ability or did you develop it as a result of sort of being asked to? Well, I, I think I always had it. I mean, like when I was a kid, you know, it was the sort of uh, the well-worn story. I, I used to um, impersonate the teachers. You know, then all the other teachers would ask to see the impressions of the other teachers, you know. So <laughs> and I look back on it now, I think it must have been a bit weird because, I mean, you know, they were probably quite good. So it must have been quite sort of uncanny for these teachers to see themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this impression's done of them by this 14-year-old kid. But, yeah, so I started off doing it. But I never thought, I mean, I wanted to be Glenda Jackson. Yeah. I didn't didn't want to be a turn. No. And I still sort of, you know, have a very... Um, well, you're like a sponge, I think. No, well, yes. <laughs> yes, I'm very absorbent. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes, you know, love the fact that I can do impressions and I sometimes hate it. Yes. Because the whole business of being a turn... Um, I mean, you know, you're talking about wanting to do serious work, wanting to be Glenda Jackson. I think when you're a comedian, people often kind of think, well, you know, they're a comedian, can they act? But when you're an impressionist, it's kind of another step. And it's, it's, it's been sort of like quite tough to say, um, well, actually, you know, I, I, am, I am an actress as well. Yes. Is she really doing her own voice? Yeah. And also the whole thing of like, you know, if you're on a chat show or something, 
an impressionist would always be asked to do their impressions. Mm. And I said, I think, you know, you're not, you're not asking Judy Dench to do, you know, Cleopatra. Why are you, <laughs> are you, you're asking Judy Dench about her process or her background or what she thinks about stuff. Ask me, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I'm not just these voices. No. So it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, really. Yeah. I mean, I remember in the 80s when we were doing Spitting Image and when we were doing Brunch on Capital, which was also kind of, you know, topical, satirical, taking the piss out of the news kind of thing. And I just sort of got so sick of taking the piss. Yeah. You know, I got really sick of that thing of, of constantly sort of going eh, 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 and kind of getting at people. And, um, and I really, really wanted to kind of immerse myself in some poetry and some stories and, and feel kind of uh, enriched and kind of ennobled by, by some lovely words, you know, and not just kind of going, eh, so-and-so talks like this, you know. It, <laughs> it just seemed so sort of, sort of mean-spirited somehow it, it, when you do it too much and, for, and, and to the exclusion of everything else. I mean, mm. I think that's... That's the thing, isn't it? You want variety. I mean, it's like when you do voiceovers all the time, you know, and you think, God, if I say creamy smooth or lemon fresh one more time, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> um, but if you're doing a few voiceovers alongside your lovely part in, at the RSC, that's great, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you use a microphone beautifully, you always have. <laughs> so I'm going to put in a very good quality one for you. Very nice. So we'll put that lovely microphone, good quality one, into the time capsule with your okay. cup and saucer. Lovely. So that's two items. What's the next one? Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with you very soon. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Right, welcome back. Okay, let's find out what the third thing is that Jan Ravens would like to put in her time capsule. The next one is Alan Bennett. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, Alan, to inter you in this capsule, but I'm afraid there's nothing else for it. Yeah, the whole business of Alan Bennett. I mean, right from the beginning, there's so many things about Alan Bennett that, that I want to kind of, you know, leave for posterity. And one of them, of course, is is being at the kind of um, at the vanguard of the, the sort of 60s satire movement, mm. um, because that I've sort of spent a lot of my career in satire, taking the piss out of people and being mean spirited. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, at the beginning of the 60s, uh, I think mean, it was 1960, you know, when they did Beyond the Fringe, really up until then, there'd been a kind of culture of deference, really, as, as far as... Um, politicians were concerned and people um people would never take the piss out of politicians basically and it wasn't until beyond the fringe when peter cook did his um you know his macmillan yes that, that they really sort of started satirizing politicians and uh, there's this actually brilliant story of peter cook uh he was doing macmillan and macmillan came to see the show and everyone was kind of a bit apprehensive because, you know, what, what was he going to think and da, da 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 And everyone was apprehensive apart from Peter Cook, who was like such a kind of mischief maker and, so, and love. I mean, he wasn't really a political satirist so much as a sort of just, just wanting to be funny and to make these people look funny and absurd. So he, everyone thought, oh, maybe he'll cut the Macmillan monologue a bit, you know, trim it. But instead of that, he kind of extended it, you know, <laughs> to a huge degree. And um, and apparently he added this bit where he said, uh, when I've nothing better to do, I like to nip around to my local theatre and see a bunch of sappy, vibrant, urgent young satirists with a stupid great grin spread all over my silly old face. <laughs> and everyone went, oh, my God, you know, oh, oh dear, 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 what are we going to, oh, my God. And, and he was loving it, Peter Cook. Everybody else was mortified, absolutely mortified. But... Um, but anyway, that was the that was the start of the sixties satire boom, you know, beyond the fringe, and um, and Alan Bennett was was there. But more, you know, almost more than that, I love him for his um, his sort of depiction of the sort of lower middle class middle aged woman, which resonated so kind of piercingly with me because I'd heard all these voices. I mean, although he's Yorkshire and I'm sort of more Lancashire. I, you know, I'd heard all these voices when I was a kid, you know, I mean, my mum, if my mum was to say, you know, it was, it was telling me about going for a coffee with her friends, it would sound like she was in an Alan Bennett play, you know, she'd sort of say, I'd say, oh, who was it? Who was at the coffee pot? Mum, she'd go, well, there was, um, there was Barbara Bickerstaff. There was Marjorie and Norman Pye. Uh, there were Ted and Jean Jelly. And Bill and Bunty Burtonshaw. <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know, this is like, and, and all these voices, you know, come uh, like, you know, I've just done this Alan Bennett, the talking heads thing, which has been like the play that I all, that I, sh you know, that I, I sort of feel like I've been rehearsing for my whole life, you <laughs> yeah. know. But yes, yeah, such brilliant rhythms and such brilliant observations and such fantastic jokes. Mm. And, I just loved it. I mean, the whole the whole thing. It was um, 
I did this one character, Irene Ruddock in Lady of Letters, and she'd sort of complain about everything and write a letter about it. Um, There's this one brilliant bit where she says, um, after I'd dusted round and done my jobs, I had a walk on to the end and bought a little packet of sausage and some basiled and bombed. Big black hair in the sausage. (laughs) Uh, The other thing is that, of course, I think if we didn't have Alan Bennett, we wouldn't have Victoria Wood, who is another sort of heroine of mine. And they're sort of, they're sort of in there together, really. Mm. Victoria Wood and all her creations, similarly, of those, you know, those types of women. Yes. That sort of echo the Alan Bennett characters in a lot of ways. That rhythm of, uh, of writing with a northern voice yeah. is true right through from very erudite well-educated people, right the way through to the stand-up comics or the comedians of the yeah. time. They yeah, had like th- Al Reed or whatever. Yeah. yeah, or in fact, Les Dawson. Yeah. And I remember just a description. My wife, my wife a face like a bag of spanners. <laughs> yeah. It's poetry. Yeah. No, it is lovely. Uh, yeah, there was this one bit uh, where she says, uh, Irene in uh, Lady Letter says, uh, thinking back on it, it must have been the doctor alerted the vicar. Came round anyway. Not the old vicar, I'd have known him. This was a young fella, collar and tie, could have been anybody. I didn't take the chain off. <laughs> I said, how do I know you're the vicar? Have you any identification? Shoves a little cross round the door. I said, what's this? He said, a cross. I said, a cross doesn't mean anything. Youths wear crosses nowadays. Hooligans, they wear crosses in their ears. He said, not like this. This is a real cross, a working cross. It's the tool of my trade. I was still a bit dubious, but I saw he had cycle clips on, so I let him in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? It is. It is great writing. You wonder how easily that happens for him, or in fact, if it's actually observation. I think a lot of it is is heard because he uses uh, lots of phrases um, over and over again, like, you know, um, so I took up my trusty platignum and dashed off a note. It stood me in good stead as that pen. You know, mm. things like standing you in good stead and um, things like at the end saying at the finish. So at the finish, it was, um, you know, or in the finish, he, he uses that a lot. I mean, it's all sorts of little phrases. And you can just tell that, you know, he's heard his mother and his aunts and, you know, the, these women that come into the butchers, you know, I think his dad was a butcher. It's just in him, I think. Yes. But I, d- I don't think any writer, I don't think any writer writes easily. No. I mean, I find writing really hard. And I think that's because I'm used to getting a reaction. I'm used to being a performer and, and knowing whether people think it's funny because of whether they've laughed or not, mm. or whether they're interested, you know, if they're, are they still paying attention? Whereas if you're writing, you just don't know. No. And I find that really hard. The, the, I mean, I suppose I, what I should have done earlier on was to get a sort of regular writing partner. But uh, you sabotage yourself, don't you? You self-edit. You kind of think, oh, no, that's crap. I won't write that before you've even started. And that's the thing that you're really not supposed to do. You're supposed to just write, just write. If you, if you feel you can't write, just write anything and yeah. something might come out. It's why the Beatles wrote, she loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Our age, they would have gone, oh, that's never going to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we're going to put Alan Bennett into the time yeah. capsule. God bless him. Uh, there he goes. I'll give him a comfy chair. <laughs> so what's um, so what's your fourth item? Remember, one of these has to be something you want to get rid of. Okay, well, the, one, the thing I want to get rid of is a ball. Mm-hmm. Because I hate fucking ball games. 
And, you know, they were the source of such kind of um, misery to me as a kid, you know, because you always had to do PE, you know, and play rounders and netball and tennis and hockey. Oh, hard balls. Even worse than softballs. <laughs> hard balls. Oh, God, ball games. You know, and I, because I, I had no hand-eye coordination, couldn't catch to save my life. You know, did silly girly throws, you know, couldn't, mm. couldn't throw... And I think as it sort of, you know, it's it's a huge asset to be good at ball games because it gives you a sense of like being one of the team and one of the lads and kind of, you know, you can join in. And if you can't, if you're sort of doing that all the time when you, we're waiting to be picked at teams or knowing that, you know, you're, you're going to be last pick. Uh, it's an in, isn't it? It's a way to get into yeah. a, a gang. I think you're in it's, a crowd. I think it, yeah, I think it's even worse for boys, actually. My three sons, Alfie in particular, actually would have absolutely loved to be good at football. Well, and the others, actually. I mean, they all love football. You know, they absolutely love it. And to have been good at it would have been just amazing. And, you know, they just, they just weren't athletes. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, ball, and then, you know, as you get older, you know, people say, hey, let's all go for a game of rounders. You know, and you think, oh, God, not rounders. A horrible heart. It's a hardball, isn't it? It's a hardball. I can't be doing with rounders. Or, or let's all play tennis, you know, and won't that be lovely? And of course, yes, it would be lovely to play tennis mm. if you could only hit the bloody thing. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I played tennis, I tore my Achilles. Oh, no. Yeah. That's terrible. I know. I'd step backwards and heard this loud snap and then I, know. Pain. Oh. I thought someone had hit me with a racket. Uh, but <laughs> I've, I've hardly walked properly since. So I agree with you. I'm not keen on ball games. When I was yeah. young, of course, I played them all the time because it was a way to be part of the crowd. Yeah. And I was never that great at them, but I was enthusiastic. I would try hard. And that was always appreciated. But if you can't do it, if you just can't do it, it's so unfair that all the other people, all those people who can, look down on you so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. There's a whole, 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 whole suitcase to unpack there with my therapist, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite. Right, OK, I'm going to put a ball in there. But, yeah. you know, we'll just chuck it somewhere. It can stay in the bushes. Yeah, yeah. You know. Right, so we come to your final item. My final item is... is <laughs> I don't know if you're going to want to know about this. <laughs> my final item gives you inner strength and outer confidence. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it cocaine? No, it oh. is. Um, it's a neuromuscular stimulator. It's what? It's a neuromuscular stimulator. Mm -hmm. And um, it consists of two um, little bits, one of which looks a bit like a pager with a sort of face of, um, you know, the readout on it and some little buttons. And then the other thing is um, it's like an internal electrode which is about as big as your sort of finger and thumb put together. And when you're a woman of a certain age, Mike, <laughs> you find yourself, uh, I don't know if it's the same for men, but um, when you're a woman of a certain age and you take the dog for a long walk and you kind of go, you get to the front door and you're just putting the key in the door and you say, oh, you just put the key in the door, I don't know, I'm nearly there, I'm nearly there, and you know you're nearly there and you're nearly there and you do a little wee. Ah. Now, um, I went to the doctor about this and the doctor sent me to this lady and she said, ah, oh, yes, we've got a name for this and it's called latchkey incontinence. <laughs> so she gave me this thing and um, 
so there's you you've got your little sort of readout thing with the buttons on it and then you have your little thing that's about four four centimeters sort of oval thing and you whack it up and you'd start your little electrical stimulus going. Have you ever used a slender tone mic or anything of that nature when you're in the beauty salon? You know, you have a sort of electrical stimulus to try and... Yeah, I'm in the beauty salon often, but... Uh, yes, in fact, you're there now. Yeah, probably, almost <laughs> certainly. I've got people fanning me, but yeah, you know, yeah. we'll go to the nail bar later. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's like a sort of that sort of muscle stimulator that you, you some people sometimes have them on their stomach, just sort of, rather than doing sit-ups, you have these sort of muscle things. And similarly, internally, if the muscles are getting, um, you know, uh, slightly aged and maybe a little bit worn out with all that work they're doing, um, you can use this electrical stimulator. I just thought it might fox people if it was in the time capsule. They might think, what the hell is this? Yeah. And um, they could have fun finding out because (laughs) what I call it, Mike, is my NEU. And uh, the reason I call it my NEU is that it's not entirely unpleasant. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not, you know, it's not, you know, it's nothing to sort of, you know, write home about. But it's, it's just a little sort of, you know, an electrical sort of buzz. And I'm keen to sort of publicise them because for women of a certain age... This is a problem that, you know, a lot of, you see all these adverts on the telly, you know, now I've um, had a baby, I didn't realise that I'd be wetting myself all the time and now I've got some sexy black tenor lady pants. No, they're paper pants, they're not sexy. What are you talking about? So you don't want to get into all this paper pads and pants and nonsense. It's like everything else, you just need to keep it exercised. Yes. And um, if you've had two forceps deliveries, as I have, Mm. Um, you sometimes find that your pelvic floor exercises won't quite cut it and you need to engage the help of an internal electrode of your neuromuscular stimulator. So I just thought this would be an interesting artefact for future generations to find because they'll probably find some fabulous way of, you know, keeping you all perky down there. Um, My dad used to have to have... A thing that gave an electrical pulse that took away pain. What are they? Oh, called? that's a tens machine. Yeah, tens machine. Yeah, they used to do. I don't know if they still do. I remember they recommended them, like you know, for during labour. Hmm. You, you'd have the tens machine, and it was, like, and I think basically it just distracted. You know, the sort of electric shock distracted you from the fact <laughs> that you were having labour pains. So that's that's my uh, my last item because I think you know it's very important that women don't go in for because th- there's all sorts of terrible surgeries you can have. Women have been like ruined by unscrupulous doctors giving them this um, TVT treatment, which is just like awful, mm. and you know just wrecks people. So yes, I'm very keen on the uh, <laughs> on the sti- on the muscular stimulation of the uh, the pericarm. But <laughs> I'm happy the, to put it in there. I mean, not I, entirely unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I think nearly everybody of a certain age has a little problem with a with with an unexpected wee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like something the Queen would say, doesn't it? Yes, an unexpected wee, <laughs> the royal wee. An unexpected one. Yes. Jan, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fantastic. We're going to put that in there and with a little label saying, please use with discretion. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jan, thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you. Well, it's lovely to talk to you too. And uh, yes, I hope... Uh, It gives people some sort of pleasure and some... I don't care about them. I enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) 
You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Jan Ravens. If you enjoyed listening, you can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or iTunes, or your own favorite podcast provider. And if you have the time, why not rate the show and leave a short review? We would really, really appreciate it. Thank you. To find out all the latest news and details of all our guests, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You just search My Time Capsule or Mike Fenton Stevens. That's me. Right, this podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And if you've got a spare hour right now, just click Play Next, and I'll be back. Or you could just do the hoovering. Lazy good for nothing. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.